Fifteen miles north of Tamale, the capital of Ghana's northern region, Ibrahim Al-Hassan, master television repairman, is crouched over the back of a 25-year-old television picture tube. He has a soldering iron in one hand, a circuit board in another. As he explains that the set's manual volume and channel controls are broken, so he's replacing it with a board that he's jerry-rigged specifically for this purpose, and which will give the owner remote control, as well as volume and picture controls. The total repair bill is $5, not including parts, which are hard to obtain in the northern region, and can push the price to 7 or $8. It's a good value. Around here, a second-hand television tube of similar vintage starts around $15. Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering and I make a monthly podcast for The Restart Project. The Restart Project is a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. In today's episode, we're diving into the world of second hand and the second lives of our stuff after we sell it or give it away. This story is really global. And so I spoke to the writer Adam Minter, whose book, Second Hand, Travels in the New Global Garage Sale, comes out this month. We started this episode with Adam giving a reading from that book. Later in today's episode, you'll hear two more parts from that reading. And the rest of the episode is an interview that I did with Adam. Like the story of second-hand stuff, the conversation that we had was global, with me sat at my desk in the UK and with him sat at his desk in Malaysia. And in many ways, it's very appropriate that the audio that you'll hear today sounds very second-hand. Everything that you hear on this podcast is, of course, second-hand material, recorded in one place, put together in another But unlike a lot of the audio that you hear on this podcast, today's audio is much more stitched together. The conversation that we had was really interesting and goes into all sorts of different areas and takes us to lots of different parts of the world. But unfortunately, in terms of the actual audio recorded during our conversation, both the backup audio and the audio that we recorded in Malaysia and the UK had problems with it and so I've had to take the best bits from all of the different parts of the audio and stitch them together. This means that you can hear the patchwork of the audio in a way that is unavoidable and the reason that I'm preparing you for that is so that you can ignore it as much as possible and focus on the brilliant information and stories that Adam shared with me. My name is Adam Minter, and I'm a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion based in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. I've been working in Asia since 2002. Uh, Prior to Malaysia, I spent 12 years in China, where I really started to cover the waste and recycling industry during its boom times. You know, we all know how much of our recycling has been exported to China over the years. I was one of the only, if only, reporters during the 2000s in the boom, really covering it on a regular basis. And so that became the 
basis for my first book, Junkyard Planet Travels in the Billion Dollar Trash Trade. And, and since I've moved to Malaysia, I've started taking more of an interest in secondhand goods and repair and reuse. And so that's the basis for my second book, Secondhand Travels in the New Global Garage Sale. So secondhand, as you say, is, is your second book, and it's what we'll mostly be talking about today. Could you describe what that book's about? It's the story of the afterlives of our stuff. And by our, I mean us, folks from consumer-based societies. What happens to that shirt, that computer, that coffee maker, that sofa, after you've dropped it off at the charity shop, after somebody has come to your house to buy it and, and bring it to their antique shop? I wanted to understand where that stuff is going because I'm a big fan, a lifelong fan of thrift shops and buying secondhand. And ultimately, I wanted to understand how we might be able to promote this industry more because recycling is great. We all know that. But even better is reusing things. So the book starts at a home cleanout in a suburban community in the United States. And the book ends in Ghana, looking at the final stage of some of our stuff as folks in emerging markets buy it. And in between, we travel all over the world from Benin to Kuala Lumpur. There's a scene set in uh, Tokyo, outside of Tokyo. So it's really a global book that looks at this massive global trade that so many of us don't really know that much about. Right. And kind of how long have you been covering resources and waste? And why is that something that's interesting to you in the first place? There's sort of two answers to that question. I mean, I can genuinely say I have a lifelong interest in this industry and it's factually accurate because uh, my family uh, back in the United States, dating back to my great grandfather, was actually in the recycling industry. We had a small metals recycling facility in Minneapolis. And so I, I, I like to tell people I, I literally grew up in a junkyard. And it's true. And so if you, you grow up in those kinds of circumstances, you certainly develop a lifelong interest in what happens to things. Now, growing up, mostly I was interested in what happens to recycling, but I couldn't help but also take an interest in what happens to secondhand things. So in that sense, I've been preparing for this book all of my life. In a more immediate sense, I really started working on this book, I think, formally in 2014-2015 as a result of two things. One, I actually made a visit to Ghana because I wanted to see for myself what people were saying was the so-called biggest e-waste dump in the world, a place called Agbag Bloshi. So I, I wanted to go there myself and see what was going on. And that really sparked my interest in reuse because what I found was going on there was actually much more complex. It was reuse and not some of the depictions you see in a lot of mainstream media. And then the other event that happened around that time was the death of of my mother. And like so many people in consumer societies, I had to do a lot of things after the passing of my mother. You make all kinds of arrangements and you close up all kinds of accounts. But I also, with my sister, I had to figure out what do we do with her personal property? And that's a very painful process, you know, and it's a process that I don't see many people talking about. But it, it got me thinking because ultimately nobody, no child takes on all of their parents' property after the parent passes away. And so it was left to my sister and I to figure out what to do with it. And, and many of the things that she'd acquired in her lifetime ended up going to charity shops. And so I started wondering what happens after we drop those things at the charity shops. Right. That's Yeah, that's really interesting. My, my dad's uh, got dementia, so we, we had to move him into a home and we've been through a similar process whilst he's kind of still alive, working out what to do with his clutter. So I can relate very strongly to that. And you're right, people don't talk about that at all, really, which is interesting because so much of our lives are connected to our stuff. 
I guess that's part of the reason for this, but I'll ask this question anyway. Why did you choose to start the book with a dive into decluttering and house clearing in two very prosperous countries, the US and Japan? Well, I wanted to go to consumer societies, and obviously those are prosperous societies because as societies become affluent, they start acquiring more and more stuff. In the United States, obviously, it's sort of the king of stuff the king of things. Nobody buys more. Nobody has a bigger consumer economy. And so it was incumbent upon me, I felt, to really explore a little bit just how much stuff is generated by people either after they've passed or, you know, in the U.S. there's a very big movement to downsize into smaller living quarters, whether it's just because aging folks want smaller living quarters or because, as you indicated with your father, they may, by circumstance, have to do it for health or other reasons. And I looked at Japan specifically because of their demographics. It's a story that's fairly well known. Japan is aging very rapidly. The population is shrinking. And as a result of that, there's even fewer people by the day to take on the leftover stuff from parents and grandparents and those left behind. And so I thought Japan in particular would be a very interesting case study in what do you do with these things as a country, as a society, if there simply aren't enough people to buy them? There aren't enough people who want them. And so that's really why I went to Japan is because of the demographics. Um, the United States still has an expanding population, but it's a very, very different situation in Japan. Japan. And, and it makes a very interesting and, and in many ways demoralizing test case. Right. And your book is is full of personal stories. And as we've already been kind of mentioning, stories that relate to mortality. The opening of the book, really the first two chapters, it is a meditation on mortality and it's a meditation on a business related to mortality, the home clean out business. These are businesses who specialize in going into the homes of people who have either passed or are downsizing and helping them pack up or the heirs to pack up and ideally find homes where things can be reused. So I spent time with these businesses in both the United States and the city of Minneapolis, where I'm originally from, and also in Tokyo. I have to admit, I was a little bit naive when I went into this. I thought it would be a fairly straightforward process. But in fact, this is a very emotionally jarring thing to go through for the families and for the people who do it and for the journalist who is lucky enough, I suppose you could say, to be let in to observe it. Because, you know, when we're letting go of our things, we're not just letting go of molecules, of raw materials, we're actually letting go of identities, because that's what we do in consumer societies. We build up our identities around the things we acquire. Marketing helps us to do that. But, you know, there are family heirlooms that are passed on and on, and, and we identify ourselves by the things, say, our grandparents passed on to us. And when you see people reach a point where they don't have room to take on the pieces of furniture or closets enough or wardrobes enough to fit the clothes that a grandmother made with her own hands. It's really a difficult and jarring, emotionally jarring thing to go through. I've, I've been reporting in various capacities, you know, for most of my adult life. And I found some of these encounters I had, say, in Japan to be some of the most moving and, and emotionally difficult reporting encounters of my life. And nobody was dying, at least in front of me. But there was this assembling of identities, watching people put away things that their parents acquired over decades and it was very painful right i mean it's kind of interesting isn't it like objects things they're kind of more reliable in some ways 
the memory. Exactly. Your memory starts to fade, whereas if it's a well-made thing, it will last for a long time. One of the cleanouts that I describe in the book takes place in a smaller town outside of Tokyo, where a middle-aged woman is cleaning out the home that her grandparents and mother had lived. And one of the things she is packing up for sale are kimonos, beautiful kimonos that had been hand-knit by her grandmother. And as she says to me at one point, I'm paraphrasing it, and I quote her exactly in the book, but she says, a kimono made by a grandmother passed to a mother what do you do and she said i just don't have room for all of these and so she was trying to sell them to people for whom they would matter and it was an extraordinary moment because these were beautiful beautiful garments as i'm standing there with my translator uh, i don't speak japanese both of us sort of looked at each other and we both had the thought my goodness you know i will take them if you can't find somebody because these are just such gorgeous garments we put so much into the objects that we own as well like those garments will have been beautiful to you, but they're even more beautiful for that woman because they speak to her of her mother, her grandmother, personal history. Exactly. In your book, you talk about how there is a lack of data on second-hand markets, which is a huge issue for us in Europe. The European recycling system is based on data which tells us what is sold and what is collected specifically as waste for recycling. But... When electronics are diverted from recycling for reuse, this is not counted by governments. How do you propose that governments start tracking the second-hand and the reuse markets? That's... That's a that's a really uh, big and difficult question. First of all, yes. Now, as I say in the book, one of the biggest challenges that I faced in this book was just that that there is almost no data on secondhand. You know, whether it be electronics, whether it be sofas, you know, whether it be clothing. And there are a lot of reasons for that, not least of which is that the way economic bureaus work, you know, in developed countries or developing countries, there is naturally more of a focus on manufactured goods. How many phones have we made this week? How many sofas did we export last month? And once you sort of get past that, the immediate sales, government interest in the these objects becomes much less. How do you remedy this? Well, first, let me answer as a journalist. Once I realized that there just really wasn't the data that I was seeking, I realized that I had to double down in what I was planning to do with this book. And simply, I had to go out and see for myself and do it anecdotally. You know, you have to go to, say, Ghana and actually see how much electronics from Europe to a lesser extent from the United States and from Japan are turning up there. Things that might be classified as waste are being reused, repaired and reused in this thriving developing country. And I think that gets back a bit to the answer that you might be seeking. And that is we have to start by, I think, reclassifying, redefining waste. I think for too long, the way we define waste in developed countries is too quick. It's single use. After that first use of the computer, after that first use of the smartphone, it enters the waste stream. The definitions we use are going to be the definitions used by advanced countries where labor is very expensive and incomes are high so one can buy a new phone. So in, say, the UK, an iPhone 5S, for example, is an older phone. If it needs a new battery, one can make the calculation that it's probably not worth the trouble 
of somebody spending the time to open that phone and put in a new battery, even though it's relatively easy to do. And so it becomes waste. But if you take that iPhone 5S and you send it, say, to me in Malaysia and I drive out of Kuala Lumpur, it may have an unworking battery, but I can find somebody who will take it and say, oh, that's a repairable phone. That's not waste at all. And they're quite happy to be using that 5S. And so I think one of the most important things that can be done is for governments, including in the EU, and this is easier said than done, but I think it's at a very minimum, it's an important philosophical exercise to get away from defining things on the basis of how affluent countries look at them. Because if you do that, you're automatically limiting the amount of reuse you can do. And you're going to have to start thinking in terms of how other people, the majority of people on the planet, actually view an object. And the majority of people will not view something as waste that somebody in the UK views as waste. I mean, there are, obviously there's going to be intersections, but it's, there are a lot of places where there aren't. And what do you mean by the phrase waste colonialism? Waste colonialism for me is when developed countries impose their definitions, standards and laws related to waste on emerging markets that have lower price points and may have an entirely different and more sustainable way of looking at waste. We were talking about an iPhone 5S and how in the UK that's almost certainly going to be viewed as waste, but in many parts of emerging Africa, it's looked upon as a perfectly usable phone. But in the UK, for example, and across the EU, you know, EU laws say that you cannot export that 5S if it's not working. That's a crime. Even if there there is somebody in Nigeria, a Nigerian trader, say, who's in the UK who wants to take a broken iPhone 5S where the battery isn't working and bring it to Nigeria where it can be repaired. He or she can't because the EU's laws argue against that. They say that that would be exporting waste. And to me, that's really backward. It's not helpful. It means that these objects which haven't been tested, but which can definitely be repaired in emerging markets, aren't going to be repaired in emerging markets. They're going to be recycled, which is fine, but it's not as good as repair. And it's the classic example of a rich nation imposing its values, its waste values upon a developing one. And I think we want to get away from that. What positive impacts do you think we could get if we reclassify that data and change the way we think about our waste? Well, I think the most immediate impact will be that you will see more reuse of things that are instead heading directly to recycling uh, businesses in developed countries, in the EU, for example. I mean, if an iPhone 5S has many more years of use in a developing country, that means that there is going to be that much less demand for digging up cobalt in Central Africa and other resource extraction that goes into new phones. I mean, don't get me wrong, I admire what Europe is doing on circular economy initiatives, but no circular economy is going to be completely circular. It is always is going to have virgin raw material inputs that go into it. The ideal outcome for any object, you know, and we're, we're talking about phones, but again, it, it could be sofas, it could be coffee makers. The ideal outcome for any object, to, to my mind, is to see it used for as long as possible because that ensures that we have less demand for the virgin raw materials that are such an issue and at the center of so many of our environmental issues today, from climate change to air pollution to water issues. Your travels in the global garage sale reveal so many important differences between countries and regions. Can you give us some examples of this, perhaps by way of some of the entrepreneurs that you feature in the book? One of the most interesting periods of reporting that I did in this book was actually in the southwestern United States on the Mexican border. I spent 
quite a bit of time, nearly a month in total over a couple of trips in Tucson, Arizona, sort of embedded within Goodwill of Southern Arizona. A Goodwill, if some of your European listeners aren't aware of it, is the largest charity shop chain in the United States. I had grown up around Goodwills in the United States. I, I come from the northern United States. And generally speaking, you would see the customers of a Goodwill being folks from the lower end of the economic ladder. But you didn't expect to see immigrants and traders from other countries doing business there. In the 1990s, you saw more people going into Goodwills and looking to put things on eBay. But again, it was all very local. What I found so interesting when I was in the southern United States, the southwestern United States, is that the Goodwills there serve as kind of a business incubator for secondhand traders from Mexico. Mexico is a very fast developing country. The consumers there want to have consumer goods. Everything that folks north of the border want, the clothing, the furniture, the dishes, anything that that they can get. And what was so interesting to me was that you actually had thriving businesses based on the Mexican side of the border, sending entire teams of buyers basically to Goodwills across Arizona to purchase things and then drive them back down to Mexico over the border where they would be distributed for sale all the way deep into Mexico. And I spend time in the book with an individual who asked that I not use his real name. So he goes by the name of the book of Shoe Guy. He's a gentleman in his early 40s and his business, and, and it's a fascinating business, he goes around to Goodwills in Southern Arizona. He makes a circuit sometimes once, twice a day, buying primarily used shoes, which he then takes home. He has a base in Tucson and he has a base in Nogales. He will clean them up and he will then sell them on to distributors who take them further and further south into Mexico. And he makes an extremely good living. He was driving a very expensive, relatively new American-made pickup truck, putting a lot of miles on it, and it lived a very, very comfortable lifestyle. So it also hinted to me that you can't assume that because somebody's making a, a living out of used shoes in a charity shop or a series of charity shops in Southern Arizona, that they aren't making a good living. I think Shoe Guy probably makes a better living than I do, and more power to him. I hope he continues to do that. So, I mean, these are the kinds of figures who who fascinated me as I traveled the world writing this book and reporting this book. Al-Hassan's shop is located on a dusty red dirt road that runs the length of a residential portion of Savalugu, a farm town of around 40,000 people. Most of the buildings are made from mud walls. Some are round with thatched roofs. Some are square and topped with corrugated steel. Television antennas poke up from almost every building, except for the town's main mosque, which is topped by golden cupolas. Many residents have mobile phones, but they're primarily feature phones used to communicate via text message and, for some, engage in basic mobile banking. Broadcast television and DVDs remain the primary form of screen entertainment, and Al Hassan ensures that the shows go on. DVD players are popular, he explains as he works. I receive lots of those. He's a handsome 50-year-old, slightly unshaven, his eyes red from, I assume, staring too long at circuit boards. But fatigue doesn't wear away his good mood and easy smile. You fix DVDs too, I ask? He turns to Wahab Odoi Mohammed, a Ghanaian-American trader of used U.S. electronics, and says something to him in Dagbani, the language of this region. Then he turns back to me and says, I'm in electronics. 
I know boards and voltage meters so I can do it. How many televisions do you fix per day? Five per day, depending on the problem. Japan's book off is worlds away from Goodwill in the U.S. Bookoff is actually the second largest secondhand business in Japan, which is saying something because Japan actually has a massive secondhand economy. Vintage is one aspect of it that's globally known. But in fact, it, it has a very large secondhand economy, but it's quite different than the Anglo-American model for thrift. In the Anglo-American world, it's donation-based. You give stuff to the charity shop, the charity sells it on and then funds its good works. Um, what happens in Japan, and in fact, in most of the world outside of Anglo-America is that uh, there's very little charity-based secondhand. It's mostly purchased. And so Bookoff was kind of the pioneer in this business in Japan. Japan has had secondhand shops and pawn shops for 500 years. They were always quite unwelcoming. People were embarrassed to go into them. Bookoff was founded in the early 90s with the idea that we we're going to destigmatize this. And instead of having sort of dark used bookshops that is one Bookoff executive told me only appealed to men. That was her quote. She said we wanted to brighten them up and make them appealing to families, especially women with children, not only because they wanted the folks to come and shop there, but they wanted to expand. And they thought if mothers felt comfortable shopping in these places, they would also feel comfortable when they had some time and were interested in earning extra money working within them. And so you'd sort of get a positive feedback loop where secondhand became destigmatized. It became a friendly thing that everybody does, nothing to be embarrassed of. And, and you brighten up the stores and make them no different than any other retailer. And the remarkable thing is it worked. You know, and they have hundreds of stores across Japan. And not only did it work, but it actually changed the culture of secondhand in Japan in a very notable way. One of the things that Bookoff did when they first opened, they were, as their name suggests, initially focused on books, but they, they do everything now from sporting goods to books. But they would buy the books, but the books were not always in the best of condition. So the founders developed a machine that basically shaved off the edges of books. So the brown edges, the yellow edges, the turned corners would be shaved off and you'd get what looked like a new book. Bookoff's customers quickly realized that they could be paid more if they brought in a book that didn't need to go into this machine. And so after a few years, Bookoff didn't even have the machines in the stores anymore because they had so raised people's consciousness that their stuff, their secondhand stuff has value that they started taking better care of it and started bringing that better cared for stuff, specifically books into the stores to make more money off it. So once you figure out that your stuff has value, at least in the case of Japan and Bookoff, it, it turns out you'll probably take better care of it. And, and we all kind of know this if, if you've ever bought an automobile. You know, there's a secondhand market that puts a premium on a better cared for car. That works for other objects as well. That's really interesting. I, I used to work in libraries and I spent a lot of time covering books in with sticky back plastic. I could have done with one of those machines, it sounds like, back in the day. As you've already mentioned, Book Off is a multinational in, in some respects. It's expanded through Southeast Asia and has 
stores in California. It's the only multinational that's in the, the secondhand business. Is there a, a reason why big companies have not tried to take over these markets? One of the reasons is, is it hasn't occurred to them. There is a stigma attached to secondhand. I encountered it over and over and over in focusing on this book. And so it simply hasn't occurred to them. It is not, at least upon first pass, selling secondhand is not as valuable. The margins aren't necessarily going to be as good as selling a primary virgin goods, if you will. Retailers are in the business. The tradition is selling new goods. So I think it just simply hasn't occurred to them that they would want to get into this. But that is starting to change. As we know from the automobile business in the United States, for example, car dealerships have always made significant sums of money by selling used cars as well as new cars. And, you know, they have the trade-in model. And so increasingly, very small scale still, we're starting to see a few very progressive retailers do this. One of the most notable, and it will be very interesting to see how this goes over the next few years, is Patagonia, where they're actually, they wouldn't say that they're doing this, but from my perspective, they are. They're sort of taking the car dealership model, the American car dealership model, and they will buy back goods for store credit. They'll clean them up and put them back out for sale in the same stores where they're selling new things. The folks I talked to from Patagonia sounded like used car salesmen in a sense, or they said, we have an expensive product new. So selling the used product is, among other things, a way to get people into our product, give them an entry point. And that's great. It's good for their new business. It's good for their used business. And you would say it's a very sustainable model because it creates a market for these secondhand clothes that builds the market for secondhand clothes at the same time. It's just a terrific way of going about this. But this is all very new. And I think over the next five years, we'll really see it expand. Right. Going back to the US and, and Goodwill, we were pretty gobsmacked by the sheer scale of consumption and charity collections in the US. Although we have a similar dynamic here in the UK, the amount that Americans spent on stuff increased by a factor of almost 20 between 1967 and 2017. Uh, and you write, Goodwill International collected just 3% of the clothes, furniture and miscellaneous durables tossed out by Americans in the middle years of an affluent decade and it collected more than anybody. Tell us about some of the people that you met who were working at Goodwill and their relationship to stuff and waste. I found actually sort of embedding myself into Goodwill to be one of the most fascinating and educational periods in, in researching this book. And it's because that the people who work there, the frontline workers, and by frontline worker, I mean somebody who is receiving the donations at the donation door. I mean, and there's literally a door where people will bring the donations at most Goodwills. And the people inside the warehouse where those donations are brought and who are tasked with sorting those donations and pricing those donations. They are sort of the front lines of the American waste habit, if you will. They know better than anybody what's coming in, what Americans want, what they don't want, what they're throwing away, and the quality of the things that they are keeping and throwing away. It was the quality issue that came up over and over. I spent some time sitting with people who were literally going into the large cardboard boxes where the clothes 
were left, going through them and assessing them for whether they would be put on racks for resale. Or sent off as rags or sent off to a landfill. And consistently, the conversation was, these garments aren't as well made as they were made two or three years ago. And it was a really stunning insight for me. I mean, I think we all sort of know this anecdotally in our lives. I mean, how many times have I said, either directly or you know figuratively, uh, they just don't make them like they used to. But when you are going through hundreds of garments a day that have been let go by American consumers who don't want them anymore, and you are assessing them for the value and feeling the fabric and saying, this isn't as good as what we saw two years ago. That's a that's an extraordinary insight. It wasn't just clothing. I don't write about them in the book, but I, I, I really enjoyed and, and learned a lot from the people at Goodwill of Southern Arizona who spend their days going through the jewelry that's donated to the thrift store. And you can say, well, what kind of jewelry? Well, I can tell you it's not diamonds and rubies, but it's a lot of costume jewelry, little trinket types jewelry that you'll buy at convenience stores. I mean, things from, uh, I'll name American stores where this came from, places like Target or Walmart, which don't, I don't believe, operate in the UK, but they're very, very popular in the US. And these are low price, low quality items, the vast majority of which end up in the rubbish bin because there's no value there. And yet there is so much of it donated to Goodwill that they employ, I believe, and I I would have to double check this, but I believe when I was there, there are actually four full-time people sorting through what was coming in from 16 stores and there was that much of it and even though most of it was rubbish there was still enough value in there that they could put out for sale or put online because they also sell online to pay for those jobs so it was really really fascinating and these are such insightful people and you know and and as i talk to folks about this book i always say if you really want to know what's going on in the world of secondhand go and talk to the people at the donation doors or in the sorting rooms at these charity shops because they know it better than anybody right I guess uh, like um, American culture and in many ways UK culture are kind of comfortable in some ways with creating waste. Whereas you also, as we've mentioned, go to Japan in the book, which is home of Marie Kondo and has a very different cultural relationship with discarding things and with waste. Can you speak a little bit about that cultural difference? Because I guess we've talked about the demographic reasons. Well, one of the interesting things about Japan, and I think in Western countries and Anglo-American cultures, Culture. I think there is a tendency to exoticize uh, Japan a little bit. Absolutely. You know, and especially with the Marie Kondo craze. I mean, the Japanese art of decluttering, I believe they call it. And the one thing to keep in mind with Marie Kondo in Japan is there aren't very many Zen homes in Japan. The reason that she has been successful in Japan, and she's not the only sort of decluttering guru who's been successful there, is because they need it too. Those books wouldn't be bestsellers in Japan if people weren't struggling there with their own avalanche of stuff. And in Japan, uh, consistently, when I talk to people there in the industry, they would consistently tell me that Japan is more wasteful than the United States. And they would cite a couple of reasons for this, one being the small homes, especially in Tokyo, uh, which is very crowded and home sizes are small. The love of new products and innovation in Japan and and fashion and and Japanese culture is wonderful. And I love going to Japan and, and seeing how people are so wrapped up in different 
from fashions and wanting to try the latest gadget. But but sort of the the dark side of this is that means that a lot of stuff gets tossed out. <laughs> There's a lot of wastefulness there. And then on the clothing side, uh, I heard multiple times, and this this really did surprise me, is the humidity of Japan is very hard on clothing, and so you see an enormous amount of clothing you know cycled through uh, Japanese homes. So uh, you know again you know it, when when we talk about Marie Kondo and and needing to declutter, I mean she is in Japan, and again she's not the only one who's giving this kind of advice. There's there's a really needed service there from the point of view of a Japanese consumer who wants to acquire more stuff, and so it's it's quite a different perspective than the one we we oftentimes get in the West. Yeah, no, I I sure I definitely did not uh, intend to exoticize Japan. I mean I've been to Japan and I and I I know that humidity well, so I can believe it goes through it goes through clothes. But I guess there's a kind of I'm going to embarrass my my past ability to speak. Japanese because I studied it at school but uh, there's also kind of oh motanai motanai yeah Yeah, exactly which is shame for waste yeah which so that is a slightly different cultural perspective on on waste I guess yeah it is and and uh, motanai is a very different concept and it's it's uh, one of these uh, you know nearly impossible to translate words but yeah it's it's just that sort of a a feeling of shame around and, and regret around waste and there is in Japan Motenai culture. And it's something that the government actually has actively promoted, especially in regards to recycling programs and sort of as a way of branding Japan, that we are not a wasteful culture. It's interesting because at the same time, you have this branding exercise going on and and Motenai is an official government (laughs) campaign. You still see this rampant consumerism. And it kind of tells you, at least from the government standpoint, the government is very pro-growth. The government wants to see more Japanese products bought. Japan has been in this very long economic stagnation. It tells you that there's something about this movement that doesn't necessarily threaten Japan's manufacturing colossus and the desire to buy new stuff. Rather, it seems to be promoting recycling in a traditional sense, not so much the reuse sector, but but getting these materials, you know, cleanly disposed of so that there isn't any noticeable impact, at least on Japan's environment, and clearing the way for people to generally consume in a little bit more guilt-free way. I think there's a lot of big similarities between the UK and Japan in that the UK is like an island nation and we're very polite and all those kind of things. And and as you're saying that, I, I think there's that duality in the UK certainly in working class British culture there is a kind of taboo against waste and certainly through the Second World War there's kind of ideas of like make do and mend and and things like that got very integrated into British society and yet we consume loads and waste loads so it is it is a very similar situation I think maybe that you can say the UK is in moving away from Japan only a little bit only a, a small step a big theme in the book is that the cheap price and poor quality of goods from China and fast fashion from other Asian countries is undermining second-hand market, that the allure of buying something cheap and new is greater than buying a second-hand higher quality item of the same cost. But then you show how many West African markets favour quality second-hand goods, and you seem certain that they will be eclipsed by new cheap goods eventually. Why do you feel that? Because I've seen it and I've talked to the second-hand traders and they tell me their biggest competition is the low-cost, cheap, not very durable 
durable Chinese goods. I think the consumer impulse is a universal one, and I think the desire to have something new and shiny, there is something, you know, I can't quite put my finger on it, and maybe there's some consumer psychologist work that I've missed, but a human beings seem to like the idea of having this new thing that's mine. Even though rationally we may know it may not last as long as the durable good we have somewhere else. And so I spent time in Ghana, especially in northern Ghana, and especially at a a computer shop up in uh, Tamale, which is the capital of uh, northern Ghana, called Chindiba Enterprises. And it started out, Chindiba started out as all secondhand. And every month, there's just a little more new stuff in there and a little more new stuff because people want it. And even though they can judge, I mean, you can go in there and you can just look at, say, a computer mouse, for example, that was made 10 years ago and compare it to one that was imported in the last month. And you just feel the cable and you know this is not going to last as long. It's not as durable. It's not as well made. But there is an element of the consumer class there that wants that new good. You know, that's a very pessimistic thing, I think. I mean, it It bothers me. And yet, you know, I don't want to just leave you with a pessimistic image either. I mean, you and I are talking, we are people who are obviously interested in secondhand goods. And it's obvious that you can over time convince people that secondhand or at least buying durable new stuff is the better option. But this is a matter of I'm, I'm fearful of consumer evolution of consumer behavior in various uh, country markets. I think West Africa is going to go through it as well. And you also talk in the book about how China is becoming an exporter of secondhand goods and that that has negative impacts for the existing secondhand markets. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, this was one of the more interesting revelations I had as I researched this book. One night at the computer shop I was just telling you about in Tamale, Ghana, Chindiba Enterprises, a young man walked in with a bunch of clothing over his arm, secondhand clothing that he was just going door to door selling. And I saw the back of one of the t-shirts and it was Chinese characters on the back. And I asked, I said, is that Chinese clothing? And, and I was told, yes, you know, increasingly we're seeing secondhand Chinese clothes coming in to Northern Ghana. And of course it makes perfect sense because China is the world's largest apparel manufacturer. And I believe it's right now the world's largest apparel consumer. And as China's consumer class becomes more and more affluent, they're going to desire more and more new things. And that leaves behind more and more secondhand that needs to be consumed somewhere. And so increasingly, we're seeing in the trade data and anecdotally, because the trade data is not always accurate, you're seeing this large flood of Chinese secondhand goods into Africa in particular. And it's driving down prices, which you could argue is a good thing for the consumers. On the other hand, it makes it very difficult for exporters in places like the UK, um, across the EU, in the United States to actually make a living on their end from secondhand clothes because the first choice is always to sell secondhand clothes domestically in the UK. But once you have clothes that cannot be sold, there's always been an export market to take some of that up. And insofar as China is sending clothes into these traditional markets to compete, that market dries up and there's less and less options for the secondhand charities and and for-profit businesses and consumers to unload, sell their secondhand clothes, their secondhand electronics, whatever it may be. And and that's going to be, in the next few years, a very, very big issue. For obvious reasons, the people at the Restart Project love the end of the book where you propose that we need more durable and repairable products to save secondhand markets, jobs, and the planet. You seem optimistic about this. Where is that optimism coming from? Well, I think it's it's a couple of things. One, I think one of the most interesting and, and in many ways optimistic 
optimistic and undercover trends of the last decade and a half even has been what some people are calling dematerialization, meaning 10, 15 years ago, I had a hi-fi, I had a video camera, I had a snapshot-taking camera. You know, I had all these things that are now packed into my smartphone. I'm buying less stuff. And the phones, as we all know, are becoming more and more premium. They're becoming more and more expensive. People are holding on to them longer. And that means that, you know, if you're investing, speaking in dollar terms, $1,200, $1,300, $1,500 in a new phone, if you're looking at iPhones, you're probably going to want to be able to hold on to that phone past the first battery. You're going to want it to be upgraded. You're going to want it to be repairable. And so that puts pressure on companies like the Samsungs, like the Apples, to create products that the consumers are willing to pay those premium prices for. And that means making them more durable, making them more repairable. I mean, from an Apple perspective, you know, they're going to be getting these phones back into their shops at the Genius Bars and needing to switch out those batteries. It's going to be an Apple's interest to make that as simple a process as possible for its techs. So I think there's going to be a certain degree of self-interest as people buy fewer goods, at least in affluent consumer societies. And as they buy fewer goods, I think they're going to be buying better goods and they will be buying things that are more easily repairable or at least more easily serviceable. You know, there's just some things we're not going to repair on our own, but we certainly can expect that those things can be easily serviceable. And so I remain optimistic about that. I also remain optimistic about the idea that people are economically rational. As we see from consumer surveys across the EU and across the United States, consumers, at least middle to middle upper income consumers, are becoming increasingly frustrated with short-lived appliances, things like washing machines and refrigerators, and there are indications in the consumer surveys that they're willing to pay more for products that will last longer. And again, I just think that's economically rational behavior that I think we're going to see more of. And I think there are things that governments and companies can do to encourage it. And it doesn't mean you need to shut down business and shut down the idea of manufacturing economies and, and throw people out of work. I think this means that economies need to transition and grow in different ways. The example I always think of is shoes. Like I used to buy cheap shoes so frequently it cost me much more than buying good shoes that last. If you haven't got very much money, you can't afford to buy cheap sometimes. So there's a lot of optimism in in those areas that you talked about. But in terms of one of the other solutions to our situation, truly minimizing what we buy based on environmental reasons, you seem more pessimistic within the book, or at least pessimistic that it will happen anytime soon. Can you expand on that a little bit? I've been living in developing Asia now since 2002. And one of the things that I have come to believe is that new consumers want to consume. And it is very, very difficult. I would never say anything is impossible, but it's very difficult to dissuade them from doing that. They are going to go through a consumer cycle. So I believe you are going to see more consumption in these emerging markets. And I believe that especially with the rise of China is the manufacturing superpower that it is. And and it's an incredibly proficient, technically proficient manufacturing force. China is going to be able and will deliver the low cost, low durability goods to these emerging markets for the foreseeable future. That's sort of the pessimistic side of that. But ultimately, I think as consumers sort of get through that first burst of consumption, I think they do want to own better things. And I've seen it. And, and, you know, and we can see it, you know, just in our own Anglo-American societies. The fact that you and I are having this conversation is proof that you can see transitions within consumer classes. And in fact, I still cover China. I still cover environmental issues in China. I still am 
keenly interested in sustainability in China. And, and we're starting to see niches and pockets where there are consumers in China starting to demand more sustainable goods. And that's good news. But I think the, the most encouraging thing about that is that they've sort of reached that point so much more quickly than we did in Anglo-American societies. You know, it took us arguably, what, 150, 200 years since the Industrial Revolution. And they've had their economic reform going only really since the late 1970s. So in a sense, it's, it's been accelerated. I think that's really encouraging. And, and I think we will see more of that. Is there anything I should have asked you or anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to cover for our listeners? I'm really excited about the kind of work that Restart Project and, and Repairer Advocates in Europe are doing. It's It's really not just UK leadership, it's not just European leadership, but it's, it's global leadership and it's, it's really providing a roadmap for other countries, how they can expand the repair economy that's, that's going to be so important environmentally. But I also want to say emotionally. I mean, as I point out at the beginning of this book, the toll of too much stuff, too much unrepairable stuff, too much unwanted stuff, it takes a tremendous emotional toll on families as well. I also like to think of what Restart Project and other advocates for repair and Europe are doing is is also helping to sort of mend that breach that happens uh, within so many families. It won't take care of everything, but it's again, it's all part of this sort of global whole of healing the planet, if you will. And there's there's lots of healing that needs to be done. Right. That's that's a, that's a really interesting point. You know, like we often think just of the actual physical planet that we need to heal. We rarely think about healing ourselves and our own relationship to each other as well as the, the world around us. That's a really interesting point. Yeah, I think they go together. And, and it's something I really wanted to do with this book when I, I went to these cleanouts in Japan and the United States is I realize we often and we should we argue about consumption as taking its toll on the environment. But but it also takes a toll on us emotionally and spiritually. Spiritually, and, and I think that's really important for the environmental movement to embrace that both as a reality, but also perhaps as, as another way at, at getting people to think about consumption. Tamale, a town of officially 350,000 people, has more than 100 TV repair businesses, with many doing far more than five repairs per day. Conservatively estimated, that's hundreds of secondhand televisions repaired weekly in the sparsely populated section of West Africa. In the big cities of Ghana and Nigeria, the most affluent parts of West Africa, the electronics repair shops are more common than Starbucks in Manhattan. Conservatively estimated, that's thousands of secondhand televisions repaired weekly. Multiply that across developing West Africa, where secondhand is far more common than new, and that amounts to tens of thousands of secondhand televisions, most imported from Europe, the United States, and East Asia, repaired weekly. For anybody worried about resource conservation, that's a rate of reuse that far exceeds that in San Francisco, Amsterdam, Tokyo, or any other developed area that prides itself on sustainability. Turns out, product durability just isn't about making it right the first time. Al-Hassan is typical of West Africa's DIY repairmen. His family lacked the resources to pay for education beyond middle school, so he was apprenticed to an electronics repairman in Kumasi, a center of Africa's second-hand trade located roughly 250 miles south of Sevalugu. Then, with the aid of his master, he set up his own business. Here, in Savalugu, he has the respect of his neighbors. As we chat, one jumps in to declare, We all have faith in him that he can fix things. Thank <laughs> you.
Talking to Adam gave me a real sense of diving into our global material culture. Getting an idea of some of the connections between different countries, different cultures, different attitudes towards stuff. How they're changing and how they're changing each other. There is quite a bit to worry about in what he says, but he also gives us reasons to hope for a better future. As with most of the questions we face, it seems that timing is everything. So many of the characters that we meet through Adam, both in our conversation and in the book that we were mostly talking about, are absolute champions of timing, of sensing and reacting to change. These individuals offer a really good example, but we have to try and find ways to make our systems of production as agile as they are. Restart Radio is a show aired on Resonance 104.4 FM and a monthly podcast uploaded to the Restart Project website and found wherever you get your podcasts. As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at therestartproject.org. The music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Optone Noise and Cassini Sound. And big thanks to Janet from the Restart Project, who did the research and planning for this episode. And now it's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody.